0: Every winter, more than any flower, I get really into roses. I'm not sure what the psychology of that is, why the roses stand out to me more than dahlias do, but for some reason, that's where I'm at. I'll ask my therapist at a later date. I'm going to be joined by my friend Paul Zimmerman here in a few minutes, and we're going to get into roses on a pretty hardcore level. For those of you that are not huge rose-knowledgeable people, I think it's going to be a quick, let's call it a boot camp for roses, because we're going to get you going in a hurry. But let's cover some of the main points here at the beginning. Number one, roses have been around for, uh, I don't know, uh, let's call it forever. You know when the word million is in something? You can pretty safely say that's forever, at least for us humans, right? If you're a rock, maybe it's a different story. But roses have literally been on the earth for millions of years. Their popularity and cultivation kicked off once the Roman Empire was a big deal about it. Don't tell anybody. But the Romans used roses in a variety of ways. They even date back to the Egyptians. Roses have been historically probably the most talked about flower and plant of anything on earth. It has literally become symbolic in cultures across the world. So even, even, think about this, deep thoughts people on a podcast today. Even civilizations, they didn't know each other. New roses all through the northern hemisphere. North of the equator, roses were grown natively somewhere. And then as they became cultivated, it really took off. So you had these groups of civilizations across the world who hadn't had contact with each other. But we all came to the rose in our own ways. And today, I don't know where I want to say the rose is. I think it's both good and bad. You know, it's a tale of two cities, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times for the rose there has been a resurgence in popularity of the rose as far as the style of it goes. Getting away a little bit from the traditional Valentine's Day looking rose that we're all familiar with and getting more back to like a garden rose. You know, I talk a lot about David Austin and they're definitely one of the people and he was one of the people singly responsible for helping bring back the rose to sort of a different look than what people had grown to expect out of it with that Valentine's Day rose. But on the flip side of it, in gardens, you still don't see them very much. It's not the first plant that you would maybe think of when you go, I'm going to build a garden. Think a lot about perennials or annuals, but the rose sort of went a different direction, especially in the United States. And that was because of the knockout rose. And Paul and I are going to get into the history of that and why that happened as we get into this episode. But I think the story here in episode number three of Natchez House Stories is The rose is a complicated beast of a flower, and it's not responsible for that. The rose is actually a super tough plant, not in a difficult, tough way, but in a robust, durable, takes a lot of abuse kind of plant. We as people projected a lot of problems onto the rose, and that's where I think we're sort of at now. We've almost got three camps of familiarity with roses. Camp number one, was the old school flower grower who did like rose shows and flower shows. We had those people. We had people that were only familiar with them through the cut flowers, the Valentine's Day rose. And then we had people that saw them in landscapes with knockout roses. And somewhere in here, like a lot of things, the marriage of all three of those needs to come back to life. So we can really rediscover the rose in a way that puts it back in perspective in a modern sense. I'm taping this story on the birthday of what would have been the 175th of Gertrude Jekyll. Now that name may not mean a lot to some of you, but Gertrude Jekyll was a revered garden, landscape designer, and just overall cool person with plants back in the 1800s all the way into the early 1900s. And she was doing flowers and gardens with a different take, even then, creating looser designs, adding roses. In fact, her garden was called Munstead Wood, and David Austin has a rose called Munstead Wood. And then, of course, they named a rose after Gertrude Jekyll. And it's interesting how there was a period of time, and this would probably be pre-World War I, and then we sort of lost it across the globe after that where roses and flowers and plants of all types, you know what it was called? A garden. That was it. The rules seemed a little less so then than they did eventually become. And now we think of roses as a shrub plant that creates a divide or creates some kind of line instead of just saying, okay, in the middle of this garden, I'm going to drop a rose or a conifer or this or that or anything you love. That's where people like Gertrude Jekyll were really good and instrumental. Maybe we need more of those type of people, a little less structure, a little bit more love in your garden overall. I think that's another one of the stories
1: of this episode. Look at my window, what do I see? A little bluebird looking back at me. He sings a song all alone in his nest, and I wonder if he's singing about loneliness. So let's get into it, Paul.
0: How did we get here?
1: Right in the open,
0: I was talking about just sort of the perception of roses, how roses are seen as difficult, finicky plants that have all these problems. And obviously, roses have a longer history than really almost any plant. How do you think we got here with that perception, Paul?
2: Yeah, the perception started probably back in the 50s. Um, at the time, about the 1950s, 40s, after the World War II, um, modern agricultural chemicals became fairly available. And what the pursuit then became in the rose world um, was for the long-stemmed, you know, perfect-centered, hybrid tea kind of rose. Um, there was a rose introduced in 1945 called Peace, From uh, it was bred by Mayan in France, smuggled to America during the war, and introduced as the Peace Rose to commemorate the end of the war. And that started that, that, that sort of that high-pointed center. And then so you had people growing these roses, and they were in pursuit of that. And so what became less, important to the rose breeders was disease resistance and natural vigor and natural health and they've shifted then into going for that form and that long stem hybrid tea you know you could walk into your local hardware store and buy ddt back then i mean it was really the truth that's really what you could do so the disease resistance became less important then also what you began to see happening was people who do rose shows kind of taking over a lot of the literature and the talking about roses and rose exhibitors are incredibly hardworking Rosarians. They're very talented, and what they do is it takes a lot of work to do that. Um, and I say it's kind of like having a poodle. You know, you can have a poodle that romps in the backyard, or you can have a poodle that you take to the Westminster dog show. Well, the one that's going to Westminster is going to take a whole lot more work than the one that romps in the backyard. And that's kind of where it all began um, in that pursuit of that. Then they started talking about the rose care and how you know you have to do the outward facing bud eye and feed fifteen different products and rotate those products and, and it just went on from there. And that's how the public perception suddenly became, oh my gosh, these things are incredibly difficult to grow. There's an enormous amount of work.
0: One of the other things that nobody talks about, Paul, is just how big the cut flower industry was for roses in America. Mm-hmm. And how that's gone So the shift has really changed for just rose growers and rose hybridizers across the world?
2: Yeah, that was part of it, I think. But um, the European breeding houses, if you go to like, you know, Delbar, Tent, Alcorda, all these European breeding houses, they always had two breeding programs. They had a breeding program for cut flowers, you know, for the florist industry. Then they had a separate breeding program for garden flowers, garden roses, which are meant to be grown in the garden. You also take away in the EU, um, you know, chemicals are just much more strictly regulated. So you almost have to breed for disease resistance. The American hound has never really separated the two, between florist and non-florist roses. And I think that's kind of how we got into that predicament of the roses being difficult to grow. and Because chemicals were widely available, disease resistance wasn't important. They didn't worry about it. And then you got to a point, I think probably in the 80s and into the 90s, when people said, you know, I'm not sure I want all these chemicals. I'm going to start to stop using it. Well, you've got a whole bunch of roses that were not necessarily bred to be disease-resistant. That's when they started getting their reputation. They get black spot all the time. They get disease. They get defoliated and all those kind of things. Um, David Austin definitely began to change the conversation. Um, in the early 90s, when David Austin came, I mean, first Constance Pryor was back in the 60s, but it was in the 90s in, the, in, in America when they really started to take off. And David Austin in the catalogs right out of the gate talked about these should be used as shrubs in the garden with other perennials and other plants. And that's when the conversation kind of began to shift a little
0: bit. Now, you've mentioned chemicals twice. I would not be doing my job as a host of Natchez Glen House podcast stories, Paul. Mm-hmm. If I didn't ask you where do you think we're at with chemicals, right? We've got two extreme schools of it. We've got the old school agricultural model, which was heavy chemical handed. And then we've got a new school, which almost goes completely holistic, where do you think we're at with it?
2: They're heading towards holistic. There's no doubt about it. That's where the market's going. Um, you know, the, the, the change was 2000, 2001. I can't remember the exact date. That's where the knockout rose was introduced, read by Bill Radler, and released through star roses and plants. And that all of a sudden people went, well, wait a minute. You know, you're telling me I need all kinds of chemicals to grow these roses, but I can grow this rose without any chemicals at all. So that began to change the conversation. And, and the knockout rose actually tanked the hybrid tea industry in, in America. Um, you know, it just went away because people were like, I'm not going to put up with this kind of stuff. Then you've got a younger generation, thank goodness, that doesn't want to use chemicals. They don't want chemicals in the yard. They've got kids, they've got dogs, they're growing their own food, their own vegetables back in there. They don't want that kind of thing. And so Knockout took the industry by surprise. No one expected it to do what it did, except I think Star Roses, who were kind of looking ahead. And over the next ten years, you begin to see a shift in towards breeding more disease resistant roses. That was one thing that began to happen. That's what you know Christian Bernard Weeks is concentrating on. That's what people like that are concentrating on. Star roses does, Cordes roses from Germany have come in. Delbar roses from France are now arriving. So now you have this entire collection of disease resistant roses, and that's what the public wants. And some of the old favorites that are more disease prone are being sold but not in the numbers of the new ones. And that's where the industry is going. So we are heading towards pretty much a non-chemical rose garden.
0: It also leads to another question. How did these rose growers get all of these plants onto the market that had all these problems? Why do we see so many of them? And are they going away anytime soon? I mean, what's going to be the timeline here? Are we talking like, you know, 10 years before we see roses that have less and less problems? Yeah,
2: it's, it's well, you just mentioned 10 years, and that's about what it. That's about it. Now, the time it takes when you breed a new rose to get it to market is about 10 years. Uh, you breed the rose, then the seedlings come up, you evaluate the seedlings, you put them in the field, you evaluate them in the field, then you probably evaluate them in a couple of other locations in the United States because this is a vast country with a lot of different climates going on. Then you evaluate it for commercial use. You know, does it grow well in a pot? And so it's in the garden centers, it's going to look attractive. Someone's going to want to buy it. Then you've got to build the numbers. You know, maybe you've got two or three, four 500 plants. Maybe now you need to build 10,000. So that takes a couple of years to build. So that's a 10-year event. So if you think about knockout being introduced in 2001, but fast forward to 2011, that's probably when those roses started to get released. So here in 2018, we're looking at roses that were probably bred in 2008, 2009. So that's the lag that's coming. Um, but that's accelerating very, very quickly. Um, you know, one of the things I do is I'm the coordinator of the Biltmore International Rose Trials at uh, Biltmore State in Nashville. And we're a sustainable rose trial. Um, we don't, we use uh, organic type products, sustainable products. We don't necessarily use chemicals. So we want to find roses that can grow under these conditions. And every single year it's getting better and better and better. And we're finding great roses that we trial for two and a half years that don't need chemicals to grow. So the time is now.
0: So we've got one school, Paul, that does concern me a little bit that leans so heavy away from chemicals and they classify chemicals in this very dogmatic, Mm -hmm. almost like they've created a religion around it where they don't want to spray anything. So do we just let the Japanese beetles just devour things or do we try to do something if that's like an OMRI certified chemical or something Mm -hmm. that the individual is comfortable with?
2: Well, I mean, it's the broader view of chemicals in general, I'm talking mostly about, you know, modern ag- agricultural petrochemicals is what I'm generally talking about when I'm talking about chemicals. Um, you know, I try to, I, my garden here at home is usually a couple hundred, two, three hundred roses, lots of perennials. Um, I don't use any chemicals at all. I use sustainable products. OMRI certified is certainly a good way to go. I use seaweed-based products. Uh, the other thing that I do that's the most important thing, and it doesn't really matter what you're using above the ground, is you've got to take care of your soil. Um, you've got to feed your soil. You got to maintain your soil's health. Um, so, and as far as Japanese beetles goes, I get them. I'm in the upstate of South Carolina. Um, I don't spray for them because the you know, things that do kill them are pretty severe. And I've got a lot of pollinators in my garden and a lot of plants that I plant for pollinators. And I'm not about to go after them because they're, they're going to kill them too at the same time. So what I choose to do with Japanese beetles is I just try to use nature's rhythms. Japanese beetles come in the summertime when it's hot and humid. Most roses and plants don't do well when it's hot and humid. So I do a summer cleanup when the beetles come. I cut my roses back. I trim them up, clean out dead wood from spring growth, whatever I need to do, kind of, you know, let the garden go to rest for a little bit. The beetles, by the time the garden wakes back up again, the beetles are gone. So I just say, you know, what, the beetles are coming. It's my summer cleanup time. I'd rather do that than spray something like seven dust.
0: Now, Paul, you're in South Carolina. I'm in Tennessee. We're both big in the gardening, yeah. horticulture circles of the world. We've both heard the same thing forever. You can't grow things there. It's too hot. It's too humid. It's completely not true at all. Yeah,
2: I laugh when I hear that. I think, I think stuff grows grazier.
0: <laughs> and then you also mentioned my favorite topic <laughs> in the universe, as everyone who follows me knows, soil. So let's talk to that, The 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 myth that you can't grow things here because it's too hot and too humid yeah. and really the problem that probably is beneath our feet most of the time.
2: So that's a big part of it. My, I started my rose growing career in Los Angeles, California, which is considered to be, a, that's the mecca for growing roses. And I tell you, it's a lot easier to grow roses in the upstate of South Carolina than it is in Los Angeles, California. Um, and I know that's, I say that and people go, you've got to be kidding me. No, it, it's, first of all, it's, it's a drought. It's hot. It, it gets incredibly heat out there. The soil in LA is really not that good. Um, the climate here, you know, we've got this wonderful spring climate of, of a good five, six, eight weeks, two months where the evenings are cool, maybe the days get a little warm, the plants really thrive. We've got a weird, off fall climate. Now, my garden's waking, but wide open right now. Um, you know, I've had roses in the Thanksgiving uh, in, 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 around here. But yeah, you talk about the soil. So I live with red clay. That's, that's what I've got here, which most of the Southeast has that red clay. So when I first got here, I had sent off some soil analysis samples uh, to a lab out in Tennessee, as a matter of fact, and they came back, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, there's a lot in this soil in terms of nutrients, uh, minerals, and all kinds of things in the soil. The problem is because it's clay, it's locked up, and so the the plants can't really get to it. And so what I do whenever I do a new bed, the first thing I do is I add a, enormous amounts of organic compost. Uh, my wife has horses. We've got horse manure and shaving and a compost pile. So but you can use whatever you can get. And I'll jump five, six inches and subsoil that into the soil with a subsoil on the back of the tractor or rototiller, Whatever you've got, you can use. And amend the entire bed. Don't do just the holes. That's the worst thing you can do. So you start by putting that matter into the soil. And what you're basically doing is recreating the forest floor, which is considered to be one of the richest soil environments in the world. Because all that matter drops in the fall or drops all year with branches. It breaks down. You've got microbial activity. You've got microbes going in there, mycorrhizae growing in there. And that microbial activity in your soil, when you bring your soil to life, that's what takes care of your plants. And that's what your plants have to have. So the soil here, I find is excellent if you prepare it properly.
0: And so much of this, Paul, it just points to the anecdotal nature of gardening. I always pick on the fictitious poor grandma Esther who she told me that such and such wouldn't grow there because she tried to grow it once and that means that those don't grow there. Or Ann Esther told me that if you take brown eggshells on a Tuesday and you sprinkle them with pink candy, that that plant will grow better. (laughs) Maybe some of this information that we've gotten that's out there in the universe just isn't very good info and there haven't been a lot of places for us to get information until maybe the last 15, 20 years with social media and technology ending up in everybody's phone.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think part of it, I think we you take a shot too at the industry um, rose industry, plant industry, whatever industry we want to talk to this, this, this thing about pushing that, oh, this rose does well or this plant does well in every part of the country. That's, that doesn't work. You know, it, it just doesn't. I mean, you get zonal information, but that's, you know, you, you're in a zone six. That can really vary in terms of, of, of humidity and climate, things along those lines. The United States just needs more regional testing, um, in my opinion. Uh, you know, if, if you are to go back to the rose market, you know, develop a rose market for the southeast, develop a rose market for the northwest, you know. And it doesn't mean that, that a rose could do well in the northwest and the southeast. But if you test something up in the Pacific Northwest it doesn't do well, you know what? Don't sell it there. Um, so I think that that's where it can certainly start. As far as IGC, yeah, they're hit and missed. You know, I've walked into some where they obviously have an incredible knowledge of local plants and what does and doesn't do well. I go to this in my garden, you kind of hear those conversations. And some of them are just selling, you know, whatever came out of the catalog in California.
0: The other thing that I've noticed recently, Paul, is the rose growers are having to change a little bit of their game plan and strategy where they used to just grow In huge amounts, they're starting to really refine those numbers and get a little bit more specific to meet maybe the changes Mm -hmm. in the market for roses?
2: Yeah, I think so. A lot of it has to do with what's going to sell. You know, that they have to focus on that. Um, I think, and and again, they're just not, they're not producing a vast variety of roses that they used to. Um, You know, certainly the, the nurseries are, but the growers who grow them before they get to the IGCs or the box stores, they're really narrowing it down. I mean, one of the nice things about a lot of those is they are beginning to regionalize things a little bit, because if you sell them to the Southeast and something doesn't sell, you stop selling it. And if you, something does sell well, then you continue to sell that. Um, but yeah, it's changed. You know, the box stores have changed pressure. I um, put a lot of pressure on growers. And, and I think they have to just narrow the selection down because they've got to move enormous volume to get the profit margins out of those box stores.
0: The other thing I think we're trying to do to take the rose information back is so much of what we've seen out there was just about the flower. And I see this with dahlias too, and it's my number one pet peeve with both of them. that None of the information is about the plant, right? So you buy this beautiful rose that you're excited about, and then it turns out that it gets huge. It's so big. And then Mm -hmm. it's going to eat the universe and take over things. And the rose... And Dahlia World, too, for that matter, were just about flower show information. And that was it. So it was all about the flower. Do you think we can help people understand that, you know, the plant's habit is really important, too? How big it gets, what it's going to do as a grower?
2: Yeah, I think we help that by putting out that kind of information. The internet is really a great source for that. It really is. Between plant forums and, and even Facebook. I mean, things like that. Um, that's going to be, you know, you could other people who grow these roses in your area. That's going to be the, a, really one of the best sources of information. You're starting to see in the industry, the rose industries, uh, as well, you're starting to see more focus on the plant itself in terms of describing the growth habit, giving a height, giving a size. Um, David Austin can grow what grows, you know, six foot in, in England can grow 17 feet in, in, uh, the United States in in the warmer climates, they've gotten better about, you are telling people that, you know, in a warm climate, this is going to be a small climber, not a shrub. Uh, so but you're seeing better information that way, I think, coming out. And I agree with you. I mean, the rose shows, they were, you know, they were designed originally with Reverend Dean Hole back in England in the late 1800s uh, with the Royal National Rose Society. He started rose shows as a way to promote roses. And that was all fine because um, back then, you know, there were no chemicals. so The roses were pretty healthy by nature. And then the rose shows really took off in the 60s and the 70s. In the 80s here, and you're right, it is a shame. Because what you saw was the stem with the flower in a, in a shopping mall or a convention center or wherever it was that that rose show happened to be. The public looked at it and that's a beautiful rose, I'm going to buy that rose. But they knew nothing about the size of the plant, the qualities of the plant, how healthy was it, was it going to be easy to grow, was it going to be difficult to grow, and none of that information was ever conveyed. And that is a shame. And I think the best thing we can do is, is people who talk about plants, you know, yourself and myself and whoever else. And the industry is just continue to talk about the plant itself and not necessarily just the flower.
0: Now in the last podcast stories, Paul, I talked a little bit about some primer basics about propagation and roses have really been knee deep in this. So for people out there, there's two types of roses that have historically been offered on the market. There's either a grafted rose, sometimes called a budded rose, go back to podcast story number two, listen to that. So that's a grafted plant. And then there have been rooted cutting roses which have been own root. Where do you stand on this issue, Paul? Forever it was budded and grafted roses were the primary thing that were grown, and then own root are really rising in popularity. What would be your choice here?
2: I actually have a very strong opinion. I would like to see own root wipe out grafted roses. I think I don't like grafted roses. There's a couple different reasons about this um, for that. You talked about, you know, people think the grafted rose is more vigorous. No, it's not the grafted rose that's more vigorous. It's the rootstock that was grafted onto that's more vigorous. And in many instances, that grafted rootstock, which is usually got through you when it comes up a small red flower, um, if you ever see that in your rose, that's what you've got, is a very powerful rootstock. It will push a, graft, a rose, but it will also push a rose that's maybe not particularly vigorous rose by nature. So now you've got a combination of a rose that maybe wasn't that vigorous, but you put it on the rootstock and it is vigorous, but that means that what's above ground is still not particularly healthy or disease resistant. An own root rose, because it's on its own roots, has to be vigorous and healthy by nature. It has to be in its DNA. It has to be in its genes. And that, to me, is why it makes such, such a better garden rose, um, you know, because it, it, it's it's you're getting a rose that had to survive on its own roots. It's going to be vigorous by nature. It's going to do well by nature. It's also going to produce a lot more cane because it's got more area rootstock to push canes from than the bud union. So you're going to get a better plant that's fuller, more bushy, more leafy. So for me, um, I think own root is the only way to go. I avoid grafted roses like the plague if I can.
0: Now give me and everybody else listening, Paul, an education on this subject. I always thought that a grafted rose was faster than an own root rose, well,
2: but is is that still actually, true? Actually, the interesting thing in the rose market, it's the opposite. You can actually get an own root rose faster in the market, which really surprises people. Yeah, uh, and, and this is why. Um, so an own root rose that does well is going to grow as fast as a grafted rose. That's one thing to keep in mind. So if you have if you have a, 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 a own root rose that's not particularly vigorous, it's going to grow faster as a grafted rose. But an owner of roses, if been tested to be an owner of roses, and a vigorous rose by nature is going to go just as quick. So the thing with grafted roses, you've got about a two and a half year time to get in the market. So you've got to put your understock in the field, which is done usually in the fall. Then next spring, they're budded. And then they're grown for a good year and a half to two years, two almost two years before they're harvested. So you've got a two and a half year window. And when you bud or graft, it's the same thing in, in a way, pretty much, um, you... Also, maybe your take is 90, 95%. So then you've got maybe 5, 6, 7, 8% of your field that you're basically caring for, but the plants are dead. And that may seem like a lot, but if you go on a million plants, that's a lot of plants. So, owner production was something that was done by boutique nurseries uh, way back when. They just didn't want to do grafting and things along those lines. Then enter a guy named Bill DeVore from Greenheart Farms. I'm mean, is familiar with Bill at all, um, or Greenheart Farms in California. And Bill pioneered own root mass production. And by mass, I mean mass production of own root plants and not just roses. Uh, But in the rose market, what he did was he then massed this this mass production of his own roots in like 52 cell trays. Um, There's a couple different sizes, but that's one of them that you can use. So here's so he takes the cuttings in the summer and they're ready to those 52 cell trays are ready about three and a half to four months later to be sold in the fall. So then a grower then brings those in, they put them in maybe a two-gallon pot. You uh, maybe they're in Florida where they've got greenhouses so they can grow them over the winter. That plant is actually ready to be sold next spring. You're talking a ten month window to get that plant to market over two and a half years. Now what's happening as well is you're seeing what are called fetal grown own root. So then what they'll do is that you know that liner that's produced that little own root plug that's produced that's what they're called in in the summer. In the fall it's planted in the field. One one year later it's harvested and I've seen own root fetal grown uh, plants that are bare root and grafted roses that are bare root. And you cannot tell the difference in terms of the size. The own root field plants are huge and just as every bit as a grade, as a grade one um, grafted plant. But again, now you're down to 18 months and about two and a half years. So in a weird way, I think the great part about this is that the, the the market, because they can get the plant to market faster, you've got a pretty much 100% success rate of what you're growing, is driving the rose market to being own root. And to me, that's only a positive thing.
0: It seems to me, Paul, that the real story is here. Roses have changed, yeah. right? Oh gosh,
2: yeah. It's not grandma's it rose. Has.
0: It's not the same thing. And we're really moving away from sort of that old school of philosophy of what our perception and the story we thought roses were telling.
2: Yes, we are. Yeah. We, we, this is what this is. My grandma told me. This is what her grandma told her. This is what you know. You've got a generation still that remembers the grandmother or the parents out in that garden every single Saturday afternoon and dressed in a hazmat suit with chemicals and slaving over these roses. And they're like, I'm not going to do that.
0: Now, here's one thing that does concern me, Paul. We're going deep thoughts on stories number three here. Food Network, when that first came out, people thought people were going to start cooking more at home. And that isn't true. We haven't seen that trend really at all. People have interest in food, they like to look at pretty pictures of food. People really aren't cooking anymore. And I get a little bit scared with like the gardening world. Maybe that same thing will happen. That Instagram is great. We see people like posting pictures of flowers and doing that thing. But how do we actually get people to get out there and participate opposed to it just being like a passive experience for them?
2: Yeah, I think I I a lot of people are doing it more and more. Um, I'll tell you what I think is driving a lot of it being people in the garden is the slow food movement. People want to grow their own food. And I think that's where a lot of people sort of dip their toe in the water, saying, you know, gosh, you know, I remember those those homegrown tomatoes that Grandma Esther used to grow, and so I want to grow some of those. So then they start growing some of those and they have some success with that. So I think that's a that's a, a real good introduction. I always feel too that any nursery or garden center or rose society, dahlia society, whatever plant society you want, should have what I call starter plural. I call them starter roses. You know, what are roses that they know that person's going to have success with? That, that's the way to get people back in in the garden. Um, with growing roses, my approach when I do talks, whatever it is that I do, particularly if I'm talking to plant people who are gardeners already, is that they already know how to grow plants. They're good gardeners. They're scared of roses because they think they have to do all these extra things. So I actually do a lot of unteaching when I do talks to general gardeners. Um, and I basically just say, you know what, you're gardeners. I'm going to give you permission as a quote-unquote rose expert to do whatever it is you want to do with your roses just like you treat your own plants. And that, I find, it can be very liberating for them. And all of a sudden, they'll try it, and I'll hear from them six months later, or a year later, or I'll get an email. You know, you gave a talk a year ago. I did exactly what you did. I, I you know, went out and got some starter roses that you recommended, and I'm having success, and I'm loving I never thought I could grow roses. So I think that's a lot of it is is us who are, quote-unquote, supposed to be, you know, plant geeks or experts, is is telling people, you know what, it's okay if things fail. It's okay if the plant dies. It doesn't mean you did something wrong. And you know what, if you've got a little black spot, a little insect damage, that's okay too. We Humans get sick, plants get sick, they get better. It's the cycle of life. So I think a lot of it's gonna be demystified and also just showing people it's exciting, it's fun.
0: And one of the things that we're working, I think against Paul, and I'll have people that have come out throughout the year for reservations for flower cuttings. And someone is always going to say, Well, when you prune these, don't you take them into a secret church? And then when you prune them, they have to be blessed by a rabbi, a priest, and a Tibetan monk on a Tuesday with pink Himalayan sea salt. And we just made it sound so complicated that we, instead of getting people out there to actively participate, we gave them all of these rules and structure of what to do instead of just enjoying it.
2: Yeah, it's just, you know... I think it probably, a lot of it goes back to human nature. You know, people like to make things more complicated than it needs to be sometimes. Um, You know, and I I think, you know, sometimes experts get sort of caught up into being an expert uh, to the point that they just start talking. And I have to keep talking and keep talking and keep talking and make this very difficult because in that way, I'm the only one who understands it. And that way, I'm the expert. Uh, So I think a lot of it is just telling plant people, you know, particularly people who are like yourself and who are knowledgeable to talk exactly the way you're talking which is, you know, just just make this easy. Make this approachable. Quit making this so, so mythical. Uh, you know, I mean, rose exhibitors, again, bless their hearts, they work hard, but goodness gracious, they make it so complicated. But they're going, they have a different means to an end. You know, they're looking for that rose to win a queen of show. so the 5 leaf at leaf and all that other kinds of stuff, they need to be doing that. But what they need to do is stop telling everybody else to do it. They just want to grow roses in their backyard to be pretty. It's coming. It's changing. But it, it, it's slow. It's
0: really slow. And I'm going to pick on this, Paul, because I pick on these people all the time. And yeah. eventually, we're going to have one on uh, one of the episodes here. One of the stories is florist. Like in that world, I call it blush madness that I constantly get asked for blush colored roses or just blush everything. And again, it's another industry sort of perpetuating this very narrow view of what a flower is or what a plant is. And we're just continually giving people these rules instead of that person in the universe that says, I like blazing school bus yellow and I should be allowed to grow blazing school bus yellow roses if I want.
2: Yeah, we do. I think we, I think we do. You know, we, we sometimes expect too much perfection from our plants. And, and I think that's the thing we all have to understand that, that they're not going to be perfect. You know, just like people aren't perfect. And so, just relax. If, if if something happens, you know it'll grow back. It'll, if you cut it wrong, it's not that big a deal. But I think that's where we get all these rules, and that's what makes it too fussy, and that's what makes it intimidating. And you talk about you know listening to the to the average person. Well, I think that's something that that the industry hasn't done a good job at is listening to the average gardener, because it tends to be the specialists, the people who specialty grow the the exhibitors or whatever it is. Those tend to be the most vocal. Um, and so they think, oh my gosh, they know that that's what everybody wants. Well, what does the average gardener want? The average gardener wants to plant plants, whether of any kind, perennials, roses, values, shrubs, chameleons, whatever it is in their backyard. They want it to be pretty. They don't, they don't mind taking a little bit of care of it, but they don't want to be out there every single weekend. And so I think that's what we need to produce for. And i think that's also what we need to teach people. You know, this isn't as complicated as it needs to be. Um, You know, one of my favorite videos that I ever saw, uh, Steve Hutton, who's the former president of uh, Conard Pyle, which is partnered with Star Roses and plans to introduce the knockout rose, did a pruning video of how to prune knockout. And it's about 20 seconds long. And basically what he did was he said, I've got this beautiful knockout rose. I'm going to prune this thing. I really want to make sure it's going to really look good for next year. He grabbed a pair of head shear and just went whack, whack, whack. And he said, okay, now it's pruned. And I thought that was such a great video. Because it just took all those myths about the fussiness, about the pruning and all that kind of stuff, threw it out the window. And that's someone who's, you know, CEO of a rose company who basically had the nerve to get up and do that and say, you know, this is really all you got to do to take care of this rose. The
0: gardening horticulture world, Paul, it's also been really good at creating problems so then they can charge you to solve them. It's been one of those type cottage industries. And when it comes to pruning and all these things, they've created again, a lot of very rigid, this is how you do it. I'm an expert pruner. Have me and my landscape service come out so I can do it for you. Instead of just saying, you know, there's just things when you grow plants, you just do them. You can even do them with a glass of wine in your hand if you want most of the time. Don't always use sharp objects and wine at the same time, people, if you can avoid it. But you can do it. it depends upon, you know, are we at a one glass wine drink, a two glass wine? You know, you know how it goes, Paul. But don't yeah. you think that's another yeah, thing yeah. too that we've just created a lot of yeah, that kind of perception? But I
2: think a lot of what you talk about there is, is, is also framing a lot of it seasonally. You know, okay, so you, you, you're growing these roses, so what do you do? Well, you know, in, in a late winter, you're going to do some pruning, and this is what you're going to do, and then you're going to do some feeding, and this is what you're going to do. But you're not going to be out there every single weekend fussing and fussing and fussing, you know? So, you know, you've got your, your dahlia it's Okay, you you know that, you know, you're going to have to dig these things up, but you're prepared yourself to do it. You're going to go ahead and go get it done. Um, you know, but you also know there's going to be a time you don't have to dig dahlia tubers, So The other
0: point here, Paul, is so much of the information about all plants, but roses too, comes from California, the Pacific Northwest and Europe. And we see these plants online and let's say we buy one and then we have it and then it dies and we spend 40 or $50 on it and we start to feel bad about ourselves. Why, unlike so many other things in life that we buy, Paul, do you think we're, we're so emotionally Mm -hmm. invested in plants and are we doing a bad job not refreshing people, that if it does die, it's not their fault?
2: Yeah, I think I'd be part of it probably because you've nurtured it from, you know, from the when it was a younger rose or a younger plant and grew up and things like that. Um, but I also think sometimes, you know, when, when the industry, you know, puts all this stuff out there that says, you know what, if it died, it's your fault. And you're, you're a failure as a gardener. You don't know what you're doing. Um, and that's so wrong. You know, it, it's it's more about just telling people, like, like you just said, you know, if, if you buy four tubers, down ears and you put them in the ground, they don't survive the winter. So what? Next year buy four more. Um, you know, and I do the same thing with roses. Your rose died. Okay. Plants die. You know, sometimes they outlive their life. Sometimes the bowl gets them. Sometimes it's just not the right rose for your neck of the woods. Uh and that's what you need to do. So I think a lot of this is just putting the information out there. Um, you know, the internet is a great source for that. Uh you know, I do I've got a YouTube channel which has got Rose How to videos and it's a very simplistic approach to growing roses, pretty much like I'm talking to you right now and talk things we've been talking about. And a lot of it is telling people, hey, it, don't worry about it, you know, get another one. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's probably not your fault. And I get a lot of response from that from people saying, gosh, you know, finally, I can, someone is telling me that I can grow roses the way that I kind of felt I should have grown them all along. I think it's just going to be a matter of just getting really, really vocal and not vocalizing the industry.
0: So don't stress so much people. If your plant dies, it could be not even your fault. You know, I've had plants die. Paul's had plants die. We've all had a moment here where we shouldn't be so stressed. Sometimes it's just that year, that day, that minute, that moment, that soil that you planted in. So don't worry about it. And then another talking point, Paul is the roses. We talked about it. They were high center points, all the breeding houses in Europe for that industry. Then we have the movement of David Austin roses more the traditional English garden, the blousy bloom with all the heavy petals. Where do you think we're at now? Is the hybrid tea still a thing? Where's going to be the, the moving forward for roses? Yeah, The hybrid
2: tea high point center sun is always popular um, and that's never going to go away. And it hasn't gone away. There's a lot of great new roses that are released that go back to that form. You know, the hybrid teas that were available in the, in the, Early two thousands, by and large, it didn't have much disease resistance. You're seeing that coming back, and there's some really, really beautiful ones that do really well. From my standpoint, the way I look at it, you know, the the, the English rose is more of an old-fashioned flower. It's more like a centifolia or damask, one of the really old, old roses from three or four hundred years ago. The hybrid has a certain look, the floribunda has a certain look, and they're all a little bit different from each other. I actually. Don't worry too much about the flower form. I really focus, in terms of being in the garden, on the plant itself. Um, to me, a good rose is a plant that looks attractive even without a flower on it. You know, does it have a? You, you talked about this earlier. You know, does it have a nice shape to the plant? Does it is it well foliated from top to bottom? And then, as far as the flower goes, that you hang on that, um, that's really about personal taste. But the industry is responding really well. I mean, the stuff that I'm seeing that's new, that's not out yet, stuff is coming. You're going to have that wide variety of flower form back again, from singles to fully, fully peddled, to the old-fashioned look to the to the hybrid tea look, and they're all coming out on these really, really terrific plants that are that are really very easy to grow and a lot of fun to use. Um, so I, I think we're going to see them all. Over. I think we're going to see the, the broad gamut come back again.
0: Paul, I know you were the person to ask about this subject. How many roses? are available if we wanted to buy one today' um,
2: in the United States I actually did a I did a check with this once so I and wrote an article See, if you factor in mail order rose nurseries um, you're able to between eight and ten thousand different varieties of roses on the market in the United States and
0: you thought there were a lot of gif slash gifs in the world I mean really when you talk about choice Paul I mean you, you couldn't have more than in the plant rose world
2: I always tell people if you want the quintessential garden plant it's a rose it comes Everything from ground covers, which maybe go a foot and a half or two feet high, to gramblers that will scale 20, 30 feet buildings. buildings. Um, you come in all kinds of different growth habits from shrubs declining. Again, the ground cover. some of them will weep. They'll come in every color of the rainbow but blue. And most of them will bloom, bloom from spring all the way to fall. I mean, that's a class of garden plants that is absolutely unbelievable. And the main thing that folks need to do, buy it by garden use, just like you do any other plant, front of the border, shorter, middle of the border, taller, back of the border, taller than that even. Buy it by garden use, stick it in the ground, and just treat it like any other plant. Don't be fussy.
0: Let's continue to blow through all of Grandma Esther's myths, Paul. Oh, yeah. I know you're a big proponent of getting people to not see roses as like a collector thing, right? So roses only go with roses. Lilies only go with lilies. Taking it out of that collector world and getting people to just use roses Mm -hmm. in mixed garden sets. Oh, gosh. But how do we go about changing that mindset, Paul?
2: Well, I think by doing it is, is how we do it. Um, doing it and talking about it, writing about it—that's, uh, I think, the key to the whole thing. Um, and you're seeing roses, in particular, more and more being used as shrubs in, 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 in other borders and other plantings. Knockout contributed to that uh, certainly. David Austin certainly contributed to that. That's, that's what David Austin has preached from day one: is they need to be with other kinds of plants. Um, you know, and, and the late Peter Beals, who was a tremendous rosarian out of England, had a wonderful quote that I've always thought of, I've always loved. He said. Don't think of companion plants for roses. Think of roses as companion plants. A lot of it's going to be by doing it. Public gardens are the other thing that I encourage to do. Uh, Up at Giltmore, for example, we put in uh, mixed borders now around some of the in the walled rose garden with roses and perennials. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of which is the beneficial insect life that it brings in. We've almost got a a, a, you know an insect situation that basically controls itself now but also the beauty of it, but also to demonstrate to people that you can grow roses, but in my opinion, should grow roses with other plants. So I think a lot of it's going to be, Steve, it's just going to be people like you and I just doing it, talking about it, and being really loud about it.
0: The disappointing thing to me is we have lost so much of the, the love affair, the romance with gardening, Paul. And I'm always afraid that we spent so many years and decades when people would walk into independent garden centers and they were looking for something And they said, hey, I'm not really, I'm sort of a new gardener. I don't want something that's really like a ton of work that we very quickly sold them low maintenance. And because of that, that romanticism that you can have with a garden, like very few other things, right? As gardens get older and plants get bigger, they can actually get better. There's so few things in life that are like that. Are you afraid that like the low maintenance thing took that romance away from us?
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think in my art statement, you know, low maintenance doesn't mean no maintenance. Um, but I think I think we have to get people back to understanding that, that gardening is a journey. It's not a, it's not an end result. Uh, the journey goes on forever and ever and ever, and that to me is what makes it fascinating. Is you're never done, and I love that uh, about gardening. Uh, you know, every year my garden's different. You know, we had a lot of rain this summer, and I've got some you know some perennials that didn't make it through the summertime because they basically drowned. Well, now I'm going to go take the ones that did make it. And I'm going to divide them, and I'm going to you know expand my garden, and then now the garden's going to change because I'm going to put new stuff in because I've got spaces that I didn't have before and things along those lines. So I think we need to get people in love and you touched on it really nicely, Steve, that get in love with, with the act of gardening, not the end result of gardening.
0: It's about the process, Paul, right? Like we're seeing that phrase all the time about the entrepreneurial world. You can see it in sports cliches now that it's about the process and not the result. And it would be so beautiful if people could put that in their mindset with gardens, that it's about that process. It's not just about that end flower. It's about the day you prep your soil. It's about the day you plant the plant. It's about the day you go out and you have a glass of wine and you check on your plant to see how it's doing, that the process is so valuable to us, both psychologically and for the betterment of the
2: plant too. Well, I think we do it by just Doing whatever we can to inspire gardeners to want to do it. And I think if gardeners are inspired to do it, then they're going to inspire other people to do it as well. I think that's that's a lot of really what we can do and just continue to put this information out. Um, I do a lot of the, the work, you know, when I start talking to Rose Society and Rose Gardens, or whatever, about, you know, doing the mixed border and, and the process and all that. I, I sell it as, as beneficial insect control, which is what it is. You're building, you're building a host environment. Um, and I think then again, just, just make gardening fun. You know, just go, if if you, if you shoot a video on how to prune a rose, don't make it look laborious, make it look like, like you're doing something that's fun. Um, that this is part of the process. This is part of the garden and part of the growth. And I think that's what we do. Yeah. So I think the journey has to become the story of the garden, not necessarily the end result of the garden.
0: And I'm going to be a little bit critical here of the whole horticulture world. You know, so much of what we see in the landscape of social media is changing and evolving. And people want to say quickly. I don't know if it's quickly. I think it's just drastic. The change has been enormous. And I will say, I don't see the horticultural industry really being a huge part of the change in the way that they should be. How are you seeing that, Paul? Are you seeing any changes in in your category specifically?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there, I think a lot of the, the the really good ones are starting to realize the power of the internet. Um, the power of something like a YouTube, for example. And the industry, you know, the rose industry is what I get. Is what that's, that's the pond that I play in, obviously. And I'm finding more and more that I'm seeing them saying, okay, we need to get away from this, these mists of roses being difficult to grow. We need to get away from the mists. You can't grow roses without other perennials. We need to get into the part that gardening is fun. We need to make this entertaining. and People want to enjoy this and get them excited about gardening. So I'm finding that's going. I mean, I've got a relationship with Jackson and Perkins who's been around for 130 years. And certainly in their heyday, you know, bred some great roses, but also bred some of the difficult roses. And they're trying to change their message to, you know what, let's make this simple. Let's make this fun. Let's make it exciting again. And, and you're starting to see the industry, I think, is beginning to realize that that's how they're going to get people hooked on plants. by saying you know what this is it, it, it yes it's beautiful at the end of the day and it can take your breath away when it all comes together but you know what it's fun to get out there you know get your family out there get out from behind the screens get off screen time for a while spend a couple hours out in the yard just you know enjoying your plants whether you're moving plants digging dahlia tubers cleaning things up weeding whatever the case may be and just enjoy being outside and enjoy the journey
0: personally one of the things that has always bugged me is whenever you talk to people about gardening, there's always like a backstory of like, well, my great-grandmother, she was a gardener and I was with her when I was knee-high to a grasshopper. How do you even know if you're knee-high to a grasshopper? I mean, how do you even measure that? But (laughs) anyways, Paul, my parents were the people, they moved in, and the, the whole yard, the, whatever was called a garden, went downhill quickly. It wasn't good at all. They were the people, they were like, how can we evict these people that just moved in and are renting across the way? How do we get rid of them? They were more of those people, Paul. But how did you get into plants? What's your backstory? What, what's the journey for you in becoming you know, such a well-established figure in the rose world?
2: I grew up down in Miami, Florida. I just had a lawn care business when I was a kid, so I enjoyed cutting grass. I enjoyed trimming bushes. I just enjoyed doing that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it certainly would taste when I didn't want to do it when it was hot and humid. But the bottom line is, I enjoyed. I enjoyed being outdoors. I enjoyed being with plants. Um, you know, my ancestry is Dutch. That probably has something to do with it. Dutch or keen plants people. And I was in Los Angeles, and I was doing something else. And I decided I didn't want to keep doing that for the rest of my life. Um, and so just took some downtime and said, you know, I'm going to garden again. You know, we had a, you we know, had my wife and I at that time were renting a duplex had a small backyard. I asked the landlord, do you mind if I do some gardening? She was like, are you kidding me? Go for it. So I went down to the local garden center and I bought some roses, which I had never really played with before. Cause down in Miami, Florida. There's not the most ideal plant for, for down in the tropics. Um, and I started growing them. And then as my wife accuses me of, if I get interested in something, I tend to go overboard. And so, I started learning about them, and that's, that's kind of what got it started, and it sort of fueled from there, and it sort of then became this, this you know, this accidental career that keeps morphing into a lot of different things, but it's always rose-related, but it's horticulture-related, gardening-related, um, and I still just, you know, I still just, at the end of the day, you know what, I still just like going out in the garden and puttering in the garden, you know, cleaning it up, and I'm, I'm seeing now, I'm seeing it come up for fall, and I know I'm going to see it go to bed soon, and then I'll put it to bed for the winter time, And then I'll, in spring, you know, we'll come in with a fresh mulch and the garden just wakes right up again. And I mean, that's, that's an incredibly exciting time.
0: Now, how does Paul Zimmerman go from Los Angeles, California, passionate about roses, to the high country in South Carolina? Clearly, there's a, a, a huge geographical change yeah. that happened, Paul.
2: Well, that one down, we, um, you know, I was from the East Coast originally. My wife was from down in Georgia originally. My wife rides horses. And one of the things she's always wanted was a small horse farm uh, of her own where she could keep her horses. And we knew we weren't going to stay in Los Angeles forever. It's just we were just, you know, I like it's a nice place to visit. I like like California. It's really Northern California. I really adore. But we knew we were going to probably come back to the East Coast at one point. And she actually had property in the area that we were in before she and I even met. And so we decided at one it was a point where we hit. said, okay, let's go ahead and make a life change. We had at that point already purchased a farm back here, the one that we're on now. And we've been coming back for six or seven years uh, for like Thanksgiving and Christmas and the holidays and things like that. And we just said, you know what? I think we're done with LA now. We think it's time to go. So how can we make this happen? And that's what we basically did. We figured out how to make it happen and get back here. And uh, that's that's what got us to the Carolinas. So this is and from, our, from my standpoint, it's the best thing I ever did. I love living here.
0: So how many seconds did it take you, Paul, before you, when you got to South Carolina to start the rose garden there? I'm guessing it was like super fast when the roses found a home in South Carolina.
2: No, I started my rose garden. Uh, we, so it was about six or seven years before we actually moved to the farm after purchase. And um, I had a rose garden on here probably five years before we moved to.
0: So where are you currently at with your own garden, Paul? Are you at that still like, you know, looking for plants that you're really still seeking after? Are you on that big collector push still, like for your own personal garden? Like, where do you find yourself at this moment?
2: No, I'm really not in that world. I used to be. I used to collect old garden roses a lot, because that's what really kind of got me over, the, really got me into roses heavily. And then in that case, I was pursuing specific varieties. Um, I had a rose nursery for a while, a little nursery called Ashdown Roses, but we had a lot of old garden roses. So I did at one point get pretty much everything I ever wanted. The recession took care of that, and that's, that's that was the end of that, and that's fine. Um, most of what I've got now, I, I get test roses from growers a lot. From uh, you know, they to put in the ground, and maybe I'll write about it or talk about it or things along those lines. I will go out, and there are some old roses I will pursue. There's a great little nursery down in Lawrence, South Carolina uh, that I love called Roses Unlimited, and I'll take a ride. They're an hour away. I'll take a ride down there and kind of shop the greenhouse a little bit, pick up some stuff here and there. And outside of that, really, my garden now is more, it's it's, a, its become more a mixture of roses and perennials. It used to be just a rose garden, but now it's really a both. It's kind of a mixed border. And a lot of it is planted um, because my roses, there's no rhyme or reason to color because it's, if something shows up and I'm, I've got to find a spot for it, so I can't plan a border in that sense of the word. So I look a lot for perennials that tend to be, um, you know, Take care of themselves to some degree. Again, there's you know no low maintenance, and not no maintenance. There's always maintenance with any kind of plant. But I look for a lot of blues and silvers and whites because that tends to really set the colors off nicely. So I just sort of I'm at the point in my life where I just sort of let the garden happen and 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 be what it wants to be. And if I'm in a garden center or something strikes my eye, I'll pick it up and buy it and bring it home and and just kind of see well what's this all about. That's kind of the way I approach it right now.
0: Today I'm going to someone's home who follows me on Instagram and help them with their garden. And one of the things I'm going to try, Paul. Is to get people out of this structure thing, right? Most of the great gardens like yours that they, they just sort of start and they have an organic nature to them. It's not such a landscape architect design plan that they start with. I mean, you can have some basic ideas, but you know, when it comes to plants, it's almost just like find that space.
2: Yeah, it really is. And well, the thing about a plant, too, is you know, you put the plant in the ground, and if you say, you know what, it's not going well there, it's taller than I thought it was going to be or the, the color clashes with what's next to it, you know what? You can move it.
0: <laughs> and you and I, we wouldn't be doing anybody any favors if we didn't at least cover it. You know, We've talked so poetically about roses, Paul. Congratulations to us both. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about the scary things that are out there. Rose, Rose, that disease is something that at least with uh, average, everyday uh, gardeners slash human beings, I have had people bring it up to me. So I'm assuming that it's out there a little bit where people are familiar with at least the word rose rosette disease. How scared should people be of rose rosette disease, Paul, in their garden?
2: Zero. To be honest with you, it's I don't I don't worry about it. You know, I get it every now and then. You know, I dig the rose out. Um, you know, I've lost more roses to winter kill than I have the rose rosette disease, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I think gardeners should be aware of what it is. And I think you should know what it looks like. I think that's real important. The rose rosette disease has been around since the 30s. It started in California, migrated its way back east. It tends to be cyclical in the sense that you'll have high runs of it, and then it'll drop off out of sight for a while, and it'll come back for a while. And this goes back 30, 40 years, cycles of rose rosette disease going through. What I would advise consumers to do, and what I think at public, where they can help with rose rosette disease... Because what isn't helping the situation, and for those who aren't familiar with it, it the growth looks what we call it wishes books, to form the growth. And it's spread by a certain kind of spider mite on the wind, which is, which is windborne. So generally, if you see rose rosette disease, if you go downwind, you might see it again. If you go downwind, you might see it again. So if you do get it in your garden, what you might want to do is just walk upwind for a while and see if you can find an infected plant. And, and if it's in your neighbor's yard, ask them if they can dig it out. But the other thing, too, is a lot of municipalities um, are using roses more and more, like median strips and parking lots and things along the way, which I'm encouraging. I think it's great. I think it's a wonderful thing. But when I spot it, what I do is I call the municipality, introduce myself, and say, look, I'm just making you guys aware of what you've got. Um, here's the deal with the thing. The plant's never going to get healthy. It's never going to recover. You really need to dig that plant out and replace that plant. But in terms of the consumer worrying about it, and I get this question an awful lot right now as well, no surprise. I really don't advise the consumer to get too concerned. You know, you're gonna lose more more plants or more roses to winter kill or voles or just you know, a two weeks of thundering rainstorms than you'll ever lose to rose rosette disease. I've had probably between the nursery, uh, when I got here in, in about two thousand and my garden now, I probably had three or four thousand rose plants that I've worked with over that time period. I've lost maybe twenty to rose rosette disease. The narrative that's out there, Paul, is
0: so chicken little
2: trying to scare people. Oh, yeah. It's much more fun to tuck, you know, it's much more fun to run screaming all their hair on fire going, Rose-Rosette disease is going to destroy the industry. That's much more exciting.
1: <laughs>
0: Many people aren't even aware that the research on Rose-Rosette disease as far as getting to a solution is pretty recent. And that there's never been a ton of money on these type of subjects. It's just really recent that we've actually seen some money given to try to research it. Don't you think, even if there is a solution, Fallon Paul, that, I mean, you and I may not have to worry about it. It's going to be a far, far down the road solution.
2: Yeah, it won't be made quickly. Um, there is a lot of research going on. and A lot of people are really pioneering the way with this. They've discovered, and I don't ask me the exact variety. I can't remember. but There's some species roses, more native roses, that seem to be resistant to it um, or have some. And by resistant, it doesn't mean they don't get it. To it means they're resistant to it. Um, and so what they're thinking is maybe they can do some breeding and hybridizing with those. Maybe they can get some resistance into it. They're also doing a lot of studying to better understand what it is, how to deal with it. Is there a way to to deal with the situation once it arrives? Um, you know, In terms of curing it, there is no known cure at the moment. Uh, the only thing you can do, and your chances are maybe 30% of saving the plant. It always appears at the top of a cane where the growth is the most tender. If you catch it quickly and follow that cane down to the base and cut it out, you might prevent it from getting it in the rest of the plant. It's a slow-moving disease. Um, Another thing to realize, too, just because one bush in your garden has it doesn't mean that every bush in your garden is going to immediately be infected. I actually did once just for the, just for the heck of it because I wanted to see what would happen. Um, I had a plant get infected, and I left it in the ground for a year in my middle of my garden with all the other roses and all the other perennials. And I think maybe one other plant got infected um, because mainly I just took hoses and washed the mites off. And I eventually took that plant out because I felt it was the best thing to do. So you're seeing a lot of work in the industry. Um, a lot of the industry is trying to dampen down the scare tactics that the media seems to have picked up on. Um, but there's a lot of work being done. I don't think it's really that big of a deal. Are you going to get it? Probably if you go a rose, there's a chance you may get it. Um, but you know what? You may also get a black spot. You may also get something else. And you know what? You may catch a cold one day. Uh, so, you know. That's why I just don't really tell people to really fuss about it a lot. Learn what it is. Learn to identify it. Absolutely. But don't stop going roses or panic because it shows up in your garden.
0: Now, Paul is also part of a really cool program at the Biltmore. So you thought you just went there on vacation, right? And you were like, oh, the Biltmore is pretty. Look at these people. They had a lot of money. What beautiful grounds. But also, Paul, there's a rose trial program that you oversee at the Biltmore So, tell people about this program and like what you are looking for as far as these roses that are submitted for the trials.
2: Well, we're trying to find roses that are good at all the things we've been talking about, to be honest with you. Uh, We're trying to find roses that are just good garden plants that don't need a lot of fuss. Again, loneliness doesn't mean no maintenance. We're looking for roses that you can plant with your other perennials. You can treat them like your other plants. They're going to be disease-resistant, not disease-proof, disease-resistant, so there's less chance they get it. If they do get it, you might need to intervene. I always tell people I always approach plant health like like a human being. Um, you know, I don't take antibiotics 365 days a year, thinking I might get a cold one day. You know, I just go about my business. I try to maintain, you know, eat healthy, exercise, do all the things I'm supposed to do. If I get a cold, I'll up my vitamin C, my orange juice. If I have to, I'll intervene with something. And then when the cold is gone, I'm done. And that's plant things. So that's what we're looking for in Billmore. We're looking for plants that you can grow easily. Um, with all your other plants that that are gonna flower nicely, that are gonna, you know, hold their foliage. And that's the goal of what we're looking for at Boba.
0: The other neat thing about plants that maybe is under people's radar, Paul, is it's a great interest that you can have and it, it scales really well, right? You can be knee deep in it, you can be like a rose enthusiast who comes up with new introductions, or you can just be a person with an awesome rose plant and that's it. So it really scales well. So how are you seeing that? Like how many people are like big nurseries? How many people are, you know, hobbyists, enthusiasts that are just, you know, individual humans that love to grow roses?
2: Yeah. It's probably, we generally do about 30 roses at the trials. It's about one or two varieties per year that come in from somebody who is, who is you know, an amateur, quote, unquote, amateur rose breeder. Um, another international rose trial is about to take place at the American Rose Society's headquarters in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, I suspect that may get a few more amateur breeders coming in. Um, because we're making that one as friendly as well for the amateur breeders. And the point I'd like to make about amateur breeders, Steve, is that they're the ones who are actually doing the innovative work. Because it's not that the large rose breeders at these large firms are not doing the innovative work. I mean, you know, Jim Sprout with Hultenius has done an amazing job. But they tend to be breeding with an eye towards what's going to sell. And the backyard breeder is breeding with an eye towards, hey, what's going to happen if I do this? And that's where the accidental discoveries come from sometimes. And I like to remind everybody, Bill Rattler, who bred Knockout, was an amateur breeder until Knockout was released. That's the very first commercial rose he ever had released. And he was breeding against all the trends. You know, this little semi-double flower that was not a big, high, pointed, high, high-centered, you know, hybrid tea flower like you get from Valentine's Day. And it went against every single trend. And look what happened. He changed the industry in the United States. So that's that's where the exciting roses are coming from, is from somebody's backyard.
0: Roses too, like all plants in the industry, right, Paul, have been part of that, like the commerce versus art issue. That in growing plants, it was so much about yield. You know, think of like a farmer who wanted to grow like the most corn or the biggest corn or whatever. And uh, growing plants was the same way. It wasn't so much about maybe what was the best flower or the best rose. It was just about like, what was the best grower?
2: Absolutely, and it still does. I mean, you know, it has. You know, we talked about switch going from uh, from grafted roses to own root because you can get the rose to market faster. Well, that's a commerce decision, as much as it is. I think it happens to be a decision that's best for the roses, but ultimately that is a commerce decision because if own root roses took twice as long to produce, we'd never go in that direction. But yeah, I mean, a rose comes out. You you know, you test the rose. You think, okay, this is one I want to introduce. Well, the first thing you do is, if you're grafting or if you're doing it on root, it's almost all on root now. How well does this rose propagate? What's my propagation rate? You know, if you stick, if you stick, you know, ten thousand cuttings and half of them die, and that's consistent. Well, this rose does this. That's not an economical rose to bring to market. So that is that is a factor in the decision. Another test that you're doing because more roses are sold in containers now, uh, really over, over bare roots, kind of almost not going away, but we're seeing less and less of it. So they'll take those those own root roses and they'll put them in the pot. You know, how does it finish in the pot? You know, does it make an attractive plant? as it, or does it throw canes that fly all over the place and look gawky and, and things like that? So that, that, it, that does drive the decision at some point in time. But I think in the case of the roses, like I talked about, the fact, the own root factor from a commerce, I think it's a plus. Does it make a tidy growth habit? Well, that's a plus, in my opinion. Um, so we don't have these roses that you grow and also they're sending canes six feet in that direction, eight feet in that direction, 10 feet in that direction. But yeah, commerce, commerce is absolutely going to drive some of the roses that are definitely out there, no doubt about it.
0: I'm at that place, Paul. I want to grow roses been out there. I've Googled. I follow Natchez Glenhouse on Instagram. I've listened to the podcast where Steve and Paul talk about roses. Now, what do I do?
2: First thing I would do is go find your local botanical garden and kind of wander through it. And if they have a rose garden in particular, and see what what's growing well in that area. Talk to the head gardeners. What kind of care program do they have? If they seed a lot of different chemicals and go find a different garden. Um, but that's a real good place to begin uh, or get on you know, local garden societies and talk to people about what does well. Find a rose that's going to do well for your area. A starter rose is what I like to call it. Um, if you do have a, a really good independent garden center that really knows what they're talking about, that's a great place to begin as well. Start with that. You know, Arm yourself with some success. Um, if nothing else, get on a, get on a plant forum or one of the rose forms that are all over the internet on a Facebook page or something like that. Start with that. Find yourself a rose that, that, that you know is going to do well for your area. You're going to have success with it. And the rest of it is really just treat it like a plant. Just forget all the fussy rose rules. Just plant it in the ground. Treat it like a plant. Enjoy it. Have it fun. If it gets sick, it gets sick. It'll get better. Don't worry about it. Um, and just enjoy it. And and be prepared to embark on it. it's a truly an amazing experience. Once you're hooked on roses, you're hooked.
0: At the close here, Paul, we've given people a lot of information. I feel like people's heads are a little heavy <laughs> at the moment. Okay. But we gave them a lot of information, but I Great. think I want everybody's key takeaway, and then I want to hear your takeaway, is don't be stressed over growing roses or plants. What, what do you yeah, want to share?
2: Yeah, you know, you, well, you said don't be stressed about growing plants, and most of all, don't be stressed about growing roses. Forget all that fancy stuff. You know, my saying is roses are plants, too. Just treat them like any other plant and have fun, folks. It's a hobby.
1: Look at the What do I see, a little bluebird looking back at me He sings a song all alone in his nest And I wonder if he's singing about loneliness Take it on in As I listen to a number by my new blue friend Is he looking for a lover or oh, did one just leave Does he really feel blue or does his color just seem Tell me why is the bluebird blue Is a song he sings a song tune Does he feel like I feel since I lost you Tell me why is the bluebird in blue Bird don't hang around too long A mockingbird makes a living Off of other bird songs And I heard somewhere That a robin weeps But the bluebird is still one That I can't read Tell me why is the bluebird blue There's a song he sings A song tune Does he feel like I feel Since I lost you Tell me why is the bluebird Spring is out, and there's love in the air. And I know that I've got plenty to share. The bluebird's blue, and buddy's so in my hand. I feel about as low as the bluebird fly. He asks, Tell me why is the bluebird blue? There's a song he sings, a somber tone. Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird? Why is the bluebird blue? Is a song he sings? A somber tune? Does he feel like I feel since I lost you? Tell me why is the bluebird blue? Yeah, baby, why is the bluebird blue? Tell me why is the bluebird blue?